0: Grace Church, good to see you, glad you're here. It's a beautiful day outside, isn't it? Alright, here we go, 1 Corinthians. You know we've been on a journey through 1 Corinthians. Coming down to the close of it, we're in chapter 16. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 of the last chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. And I'm just grateful that this wasn't my text where I was in the natural flow of things on Easter Sunday. (laughs) Yeah, take an Easter crowd and preach about giving. That would have went over well, wouldn't it? Uh, Well, it didn't really matter. About the same effect. I don't see any of those Easter visitors here anyway, huh? (laughs) Just saying, just saying. All right, uh, listen. Giving is a subject that none of us really like to hear about. It's not a subject that I like to preach about. But can I say to you, that in a spiritual and in a biblical sense, giving is so much more than about nickels and quarters and dimes and dollars. It really is. It's more, about, it's more than just numbers that demonstrate profit and loss. There's so much more contained in biblical giving. And we want to try to see what it is that this text has to say about this today. So follow along with me as I read... Paul's letter and instructions to the Corinthians found in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. All right, here we go. Uh, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve... I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Well, you know, one of the cool things about a church start, and that's what grace is, we've got to keep our eyes on that. How many years old is Grace Church? Anybody know right off the top of your head? We celebrated a birthday on Easter Sunday... And that marks six years. So grace is really, in comparison to other churches, man, we're just fledgling, are we not? I mean, we're young. Uh, Somebody was worshiping with us for the first time last Sunday, and I, I mentioned to them that we are six years old, and they could just not conceive of a church that wasn't started in 1849, like most of the rest of them were. And I said, well, the good thing about that is we don't have enough history to have started a whole lot of bad habits yet. So, you know, that's the upside of it. But the other upside of it, just about everything we do establishes a new record. For example, on Easter Sunday, uh, we establish a new high attendance record. It's not easy to establish, keep establishing new records when you start it at zero, Right? So this past Easter Sunday was another high attendance record. And this past financial year in 22 established again another, as we have every successive year, established another giving record. But now all of that sounds well and good, but guess what happened? Somewhere in between 22 and 23, we flipped the page of the calendar And I'm still trying to scratch my head and figure out, hey, is this the same church that we had in 2022? Because, get this, you know, every year I I do like to see us and our elders do a good job of stretching us because if we make our next year's budget based on this year's income, there was no faith involved in that at all, was there not? So I like to see our elders stretch ourselves in relation to budget, and every year we have. So the 2023 budget, the one that we're in right now, reflects about a 12% increase over last year's budget. Now, here's the thing. We also are, every year, adding more and more people to our numbers and to our family. So last year, we added about 9%. We grew by a total of 9% in number. Now, you know, there is a business side to church. Let me lay a little bit of that on you. In our particular demographic in Bonifay, Florida, and with our church size, and with our giving patterns, every 10% we grow in number, that is, in membership... That should reflect about a 20% increase in overall budget giving. Now, did you follow that? Every 10% growth in membership in our demographic, with our median income level and with our giving patterns in our church size, that should reflect about a 20% growth in church giving. So, Let's go from the first quarter of 22 to where we are in our budget right now. So if we had a 12% increase in budget, we grew by 9 or 10% in increase of members, and that bumps us up 20%, we ought to have an 8% surplus over budget, which belies the fact that our elders didn't have a whole lot of faith, right? That's what you would think. But wait a minute, let me tell you what's happened. Somewhere in that mix, we didn't gain 8%. As a matter of fact, our budget giving is down. Hold on to your socks now. 40%. I knew you were going to shock. You're going to be shocked and going to gasp. Now, here's what, here's what that represents. We are, we are below budget about 39%. From the first quarter of 22 to the first quarter of 23, we have seen a decrease, even with numerical growth, of about 24% in regular giving. So it makes me wonder, God, what are you up to? I mean, has God turned the faucet off? Or are we doing something that's got a clog in the system? So you wonder, is a sermon like this passage really necessary in a new church like Grace that continually sets new records? Why, yes it is, because we are 40% below budget. Now hear me, we are not like the government of the United States of America. We can't just raise the debt ceiling and continue to spend even though we don't have that income. You know the old adage, if your outgo exceeds your income, then your upkeep will be your downfall. So we're going to have to make some adjustments. So what does that mean? Well, if we're down 40%, that means we've got to find 40% somewhere. That means that we've got to look at some of these men and women who already... Do you know we have no professional ministers at Grace Church? Did you know that? You know what a professional minister is? somebody who works at the church and they get their entire living from the church and that's it we don't have any of those all of the folk that serve at grace church work one or two more jobs for the opportunity to serve at grace so wouldn't it be a shame to have to look at those folk who are already making a sacrifice and saying well we're going to cut your salary by 40 percent so to put it in perspective this is what it looks like when a church is down 40 percent. what would you do in your household if all of a sudden you're Income reflected a 40% decrease. There would be a scrambling, would there not? Hey, 40%, that's close to half. So there would be a scrambling. So that's what takes place in church life as well. So we either have to look to our guys and gals that are already overworked and underpaid and say, sorry, you're getting a pay cut. We have to look to our missionaries and say, you know, we had a good idea here. And boy, we've been blessing y'all abundantly and we've been making good headway and pushing the light of the gospel out in areas of darkness. But I'm sorry, that gravy train is over. Or we have to say, look, we can't afford to rent this fine, luxurious building that we're in anymore. I mean, something has to give in those circumstances. So what in the world do we do? Well, let's check out and see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, here's the deal. So many folk think that there is such an abrupt shift in what Paul is saying between verse 58 and then, uh, of chapter 15 and verse 1 of chapter 16. I don't think there is an abrupt shift at all. I think he stays right in line with what he's been talking about. Let me show you how, how this connection is made by Paul linguistically. Look what he says in verse number 58. We're going to start right there in the middle where he says, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now you see, I think that is his connection. Because notice what he does when you come down to uh, verse number 10 in chapter 16. He talks about Timothy and he says, When Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Why? For he is doing, here we go again, the Lord's work... Just as I am also. So I think what Paul is doing here is he's using this idea of the work of the Lord, of the Lord's work, as his segue and as his bridge between these two chapters. So here's what Paul is saying, I think. I think Paul is identifying for us what the work of the Lord really is. So let me speak to you today for these few moments that I have. Hey, not just on giving, but on the work. Of the Lord, because that seems to be the linguistic bridge in this text. What is the work of the Lord? And last week we really didn't have to have time to go in that because we were all over the place, running out of time as it was. So we didn't have time to identify what the work of the Lord is. So tell me if I'm right or not. Most of the time, we think that those who are doing the Lord's work are are missionaries who are on a cross-cultural mission field today. We would certainly say that Dane Caldwell and Jim Wells and uh, 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 our other missionaries are doing the work of the Lord. Isn't that right? We also think that those who are doing the work of the Lord are folk like preachers and evangelists and folk like that who are involved in what we consider to be the work of the Lord. But let me ask you a question. What room does that leave for the rest of us who may not be a cross-cultural missionary who may not be a preacher or a teacher or a worship leader or something like that. Does that mean we're not involved in the work of the Lord? No, that's not what it means. As a matter of fact, I think this is what Paul is doing. I think the connection that he's making here in these linguistic bridges, I think what Paul is telling us is that those involved in the work of the Lord are givers. Are givers. You see, that's the subject matter that he's talking about here. Now look, as if that linguistic connection was not enough, look at our auxiliary text that Rashad read in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. Notice... Paul uses a phrase here that is kind of curious, but nonetheless, I think it reinforces what he's saying to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Notice what Paul said in in chapter 6. And again, he's writing to them and telling them about how the churches in Macedonia have shocked him and how they have given to the same offering that Paul is asking the Corinthians to participate in. So look what he says in verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Now underline that phrase, gracious work. Now look with me in verse number 7, look what he says. And here's another linguistic connection to verse 58 of, uh, of chapter 15. The very last phrase, look what he says. See that you abound... We made a big deal out of that word last week. See that you abound in this gracious work also. Now what is the gracious work that he's talking about here? It's giving. He's exactly right. So he's saying to us that part of the work of God is our financial participation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, that's not all of the work of the Lord, but make no mistake about it, that is definitely a part of the work of the Lord. So when you come to Grace Church on Sunday morning, it's not only an opportunity for you to express your worship and how you're prioritizing God by your faithful giving, but it also is your participation in the work of the Lord. Paul tells us here that those who are involved in the work of the Lord are givers so let's look and see what it is in the context of all of this stuff between these two big blocks of scripture that we've just looked at what is it that paul tells us about givers and giving well i think at verse number 58 paul would say this that giving sanctifies legitimate work giving sanctifies legitimate work now let me say it another way Your giving to gospel propagation is what makes your profession holy unto the Lord. You know why that is? Because your profession is how you earn money in order to be able to make a proportionate contribution to gospel propagation. Now, notice I said legitimate work. And there are so many people today that worry about, hey, is, is my work something that, that, that is pleasing to the Lord? Is, it, are, are, are you using your job as a platform, as a means through which you yourself participate in the work of the Lord? And if so, I would say that giving sanctifies or legitimizes legitimate work. Now again, I said legitimate work because hear me. You can't be running moonshine <laughs> and tithe on it <laughs> and expect God to be all right with that. I mean, you can't, be, uh, you can't be an American gigolo and tithe on that and expect that you're giving to sanctify your gigolo profession. That's why I quit it when I was saved. <laughs> well, thank you, Jerry. <laughs> I just can't help me. I mean, we got to lighten it up a little bit, huh? I mean, y'all all too serious. Y'all look like I'm fixing to come pull out my gun and say, give me your wallet. <laughs> just want to see if y'all are still tracking with me. <laughs> so here we go. Notice what Paul says. Paul says this in verse number 58 of, of 15. Always abounding, and here's our phrase, the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your toil, man, that is hard work. That is work that generates perspiration. That's work that causes you to go home at night and you can't wait till your head hits that pillow because you're asleep while you're still walking to the bed. It's that type of work. You see, that's what Paul is talking about. And, 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 and get this with me. Here, here's what he's saying. He's saying, when you work like that, for the purpose of being able to give to, prop, to gospel propagation, you are involved in the work of the Lord. Now, you know, here's what we'll do a lot of times. Let's, let's look at this word toil, because here's what we'll do. You know, so many times we'll say, man, I sure would like to have that new ATV, but I just don't have the money. I would like to have that new coach handbag, but I just don't have the money. <laughs> I sure would like to have that new pair of shoes, but I just don't have the money. So here's what we'll do. We'll go to looking around, seeing what we can do on the side. We can get us a side hustle. We can moonlight a little bit. We can take on some overtime in order to buy that toy for us, right? But let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took on a side hustle to be able to give to the work of the Lord and be involved in the work of the Lord? Huh? Huh? Hey, in the church that I pastored before we went to the mission field, man, God God just was revolutionizing our church and really changing our church because of mission involvement and gospel propagation among those who don't have the opportunity to hear. And we had this mission project that we wanted to get done, and we just didn't have, there, there was just no room in the budget for it. So here's what we decided to do. We decided to ask everybody in our church to fast one day a week during lunch. Just fast one day a week during lunch. And take that dollar amount, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fourteen dollars, whatever you spend on lunch, and let's give it to this mission cause. And man, I want to tell you, God got into that thing in such a way that He blew out both ends of it. Because I think the Spirit was, was involved because here God's people were making a sacrifice in order to get the gospel to a certain place that had never had it. They were fasting, giving up lunch, and taking that money and giving it to the church. And my gosh, that thing was fruitful. So you see, Paul's telling us here that there's something more to give than just dimes and dollars those involved in the work of the Lord are definitely givers because giving is part of the work of God. So he tells us that giving sanctifies legitimate work. But he also tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that giving signifies an inward reality. Now I want you to see this. I don't know if you picked it up when Rashad read it, but check out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He talks about those churches in Macedonia... He says, I want you to know what they've done. I I, I want to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Do you know what what inward reality is signified when folk give grace? That grace has been bestowed upon you and grace always enables us to do what we cannot do in our own natural ability. So Paul says, let me tell you about the grace of God that was bestowed upon those churches. And look what he says in verse number 2. That in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now would you look at that formula that Paul gives us in verse number 2. Write this down. Write down affliction plus deep poverty equals liberality plus joy. Now, does that make sense to you? Because it doesn't make sense to me. Because you know what we normally say? We normally say, Pastor Richie, I would love to give, but I can't afford it. Is that what the Macedonians said? Now look, their, their affliction and their what? Deep poverty overflowed in the abundance of their liberal giving and in turn their joy. My goodness. Hey, here's the thing. You know, God's math isn't the same as our math. Did you know that? It's not. God took folk who were in in great affliction, a great deal of affliction, and in deep poverty, and He graced them, and they turned into joyous liberal givers. My goodness. You don't find that anywhere else. I mean, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. But can I say to you, God is not on our time schedule, nor is He bound by our financial formulas. And so many times I hear folks saying, man, I'd like to have, but I just can't afford it. Hey, can I say to you this? Disobedience is never the pathway out of a financial crisis. It's not disobedience is only going to multiply the crisis. So it comes down to faith. And you see, that's what giving is all about. It's all about faith. And am I going to believe God? And am I going to allow Him to enact His formulas in my condition? Or am I going to continue to live by formulas that the world has placed upon me which says, I can't afford to do this. So here's what it does. Here's what giving does. Giving signifies a deep inward reality. You know, it's always this way. It seems that some of the most gracious givers are those who have the least of this material of this world's material wealth. Isn't that amazing? Because they've just figured it out, brothers. They just have. Now, check out number three, because here, you've got to write a number three because my computer program crashed before I got finished writing this thing. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to have to figure out how to... Fix my computer before we can ever have another sermon. So we might be through 1 Corinthians, (laughs) y'all. Here it is. Notice, giving, number one, sanctifies legitimate work. Number two, giving signifies an inward reality. And number three, giving solidifies your eternal legacy. Write it just under number two there. Giving solidifies your eternal legacy. Now, here's what I mean by that. Here's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me see, rather than quoting it, let me see if I can find it real quick as I fan back here. Listen to what it is that, that, uh, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. You know, now, stop and think about this. Everything that you own today, everything that you have in your possession, all material goods, one day they're either going to burn up or they're going to rust down. One of the two. I mean, there ain't nothing you've got today that's going to be around probably in a hundred years. Right? It's just not. Mall's going to eat your clothes. Rust is going to destroy what you got parked in your garage, on your driveway. Or a thief's going to break in and steal it. So look here. In a hundred years, there may be absolutely no evidence that you were even on this earth. If all of your investment is in those things. Huh? But here, it won't take that long, will it, Mister Muck? Right. It won't take a hundred years. No, it'll, it'll it'll be a whole lot less than that. No, it won't take fifty. I I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna do you one better, twenty. <laughs> do I hear fifteen? <laughs> fifteen? I got fifteen. How about ten? <laughs> I mean, we can just, we can just bid this thing off? But yeah, everything that we have on this earth is going to be gone. So when I'm talking about legacy, I'm talking about something that's going to stay around for an eternity. What's your legacy going to be, especially in eternity? And you know the only way you can have an eternal legacy is doing what Jesus says by not laying up treasures on earth, but laying them up in heaven. Now how do you lay treasures up in heaven is the million dollar question, right? Watch me. you got to send it up there before you get there. Because once you get there, it's too late. You got to send it up there before you get there. So, how do you send it up there? By investing in people who are going to go there. You see, that's what gospel propagation, that's what reaching the unreach is all about. It's about laying up treasures in heaven. We're investing in people who are going to go there. You know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says, All of our work will be tried by fire. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And, and that's what it's all going to do. Is it not going to rust or be burned up or stolen or something like that? But if any man's work remains, he will receive a reward. Hey, let me ask you something. Are you ready to go to heaven right now with the legacy that you've already sent up? If not, you've got time to work on it. Huh? Several years ago, I read a story about this, uh, this Texas... Oil tycoon who was a multimillionaire. Son, he had to do re me. You know what I'm talking about? And um, he was also a believer, however. And this multimillionaire lived at the time of the first Great Depression. Notice I said first. The late 20s, early 30s. And here's what happened to that millionaire. As you know, there was a catastrophic failure of the banking industry. I've heard stories. Cliff has told me stories about his grandpa going to the bank uh, right here in Chipley and the doors were locked. Lost everything that he had in the bank. This millionaire did the same thing because of a bank failure. By the way, does that make any of you nervous? Huh? You see what we've been seeing on the news for the past several weeks? Uh, Bank failures. I'm telling you, it's not far-fetched. You think it could, could happen, not happen again. But this millionaire lost everything. And somebody was interviewing him, and they said this to him. They said, man, how does it make you feel to know that you lost everything that you have worked your entire life to gain? And here's what the old boy said. The old boy said, well, I wouldn't necessarily say I've lost everything that I worked for because what I gave away I didn't lose he said as a matter of fact what I gave away is more secure than anything that I had in the bank because I've been investing in people who are going to heaven I thought my goodness what a response and I began to think about that little old bitty savings account that I've got at Wells Fargo. Now, if that bank collapses, you know how much legacy I just cheated myself out of? My goodness. This old boy said, no, I I didn't lose anything. He said, it's waiting for me. It's laid up in heaven. See, giving solidifies our eternal legacy. So, how much is going to be waiting on you when you get there? Are you going to leave it all behind? See, that's the only question. Did I leave it all in a savings account at Wells Fargo? Or did I send it ahead of me to get there laid up in heaven, reserved forever and ever? Well, notice what Paul says. We've got to hurry. These folk who, who are involved in, in the Lord's work are givers. Giving sanctifies legitimate work, signifies an inward reality, solidifies your eternal legacy. And notice now, let's get into verse 2 of this thing because it's going to tell us how they gave. You see, these folk knew this. So how did those Corinthians give? The same way we should give. Look what he says in verse number 2. On the first day of the week. So how did those involved in the work of the Lord give? Number one, they give regularly. Regularly. Paul says, on the first day of the week. Now notice, in the New Testament, always refers to Sunday as the first day of the week. Nowhere does the Bible refer to Sunday as the Lord's day. You know, some of my more scholarly and spiritual friends always talk about Sunday being the Lord's day. No, Sunday's the first day of the week. Quit being so spiritual. Ding dong. (laughs) Every day is the Lord's day. (laughs) Is it not? (laughs) As far as that goes, He owns them all. So how did those folk give? Well, they give regularly. Paul says, on the first day of the week. So... We have to ask ourselves, do I have a regular pattern of giving? And look, it may not be every week. It may be every other week. It may be once a month. But however we do it, there's got to be regularity in our giving. Notice what else Paul says. Therefore, verse number 2, these folk involved in the work of the Lord give regularly, but notice what else they do. They give individually. Individually. Check this out. On the first day of the week, here's our phrase, each one of you. You know, so many times we have this idea that, hey man, I don't have to do it because somebody else is. And everybody thinks somebody else is, so guess what happens? Nobody does. But Paul puts the onus on each one of us. So you can take your finger and put it right here. Who is it that the Lord expects to give? Me. Does he say anything about... How much you make and can you afford it? No. He says, if you have to, take on a second job. Take on overtime. Get a side hustle. But each one of you is to participate in the work of the Lord. So it is an individual privilege and responsibility. Number next, look what he says. How else did they give? Uh, Verse number 2. On the first day of the week, regularly, each one of you individually is to put aside and save as he may prosper, they give proportionately. Give proportionately. So I don't know what the proportion is, what the percentage is, what the ratio is for you. You know, folk always are wanting to split hairs as tithing, New Testament. Well, if you really want to get right down to it, tithing is not New Testament. Giving is New Testament. And here's the way I've heard it explained. For us who live under grace, this side of the cross, to give less than those did under law on the other side of the cross is a disgrace. So if they gave 10%, I mean, we at least ought to be able to come up to that level, should we not? So look, I've never been legalistic about the percentage. I just am not going to impose that, but that's always been a benchmark for Heather and I. Hey, if we can't do at least 10%, something's bad wrong with our spiritual condition. Something's wrong. So, they gave regularly, they gave individually, and they gave proportionately. Here's number four, write it down, because again, my computer crashed before I got through. I was taking notes, and that's all I could do was print what I had. So how else did they give? Well, they gave abundantly. Check this out. Look what Paul says... In um, verse number 4, he says, If it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. He's talking about those who are going to take this offering and carry it to Jerusalem. Now, you see this word fitting right here in verse number 4? You may want to underline it, put it in parentheses, because here is the literal translation of that word. If it is worthy... So we begin to see now what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about circumstances when he uses the word it or the conditions in which he's living. The, the, the pronoun it, the antecedent, it refers to the gift. And by the way, notice what he says here. He says, uh, they will carry your gift to Jerusalem. Do you see that word gift? That is the word grace. It's the word charis. So these folk were extending grace to other believers, and Paul says, if that grace or if that gift, if that offering is worthy, then I will go also. Here's what Paul seemed to be saying. He's saying, if you guys give abundantly, y'all going to have a stack stack of, uh, of money. He said, if you got a stack, I will personally go with them to Jerusalem. Well, guess what? We know from the book of Acts that Paul did go with them. So guess what they must have done? So they must have opened their wallets and they must have poured into this offering because the Apostle Paul said, oh wow, this is a worthy gift, so I'm going with them. So how do givers give? They give regularly, they give individually, they give proportionately, and they give abundantly. Number next, notice what else Paul says about those who are involved in the work of the Lord. Number one, those involved in the work of the Lord are givers, verses 1 and 2. But those involved in the work of the Lord in verses 3 and 4 are guarded. Guarded. Now, I think this is is some of the reason why we respond the way we do when we start talking about giving. Because boys and girls, listen to me. When it comes to money, we have got to be very very careful. We can blow it all. Now look, I'm telling you on the basis of 30 something years of pastoral experience there are two things that can shipwreck you without hesitation and sometimes without substantiation just an accusation. Two things in ministry and you're done. 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 Number one is money. And number two is morality. You give the appearance of evil in any one of those areas and you're done. And I think the Apostle Paul knows that. And those who are givers, they know that. So they are very guarded as as it relates to these things. Now notice what they are guarding. Uh, What are they guarding when we say they're guarded? Well, number one, they are guarding the credibility of the church. The credibility of the church. Hey, do you know know what is ultimately important to me? The name and the credibility and the character of Grace Church Bonifay. Hey, if we blow our credibility in front of this lost and dying world, we're done, Jerry. It doesn't matter how much money we're collecting. It doesn't matter what's going on. We blow our credibility in one of these areas of money and morality and we might as well take the sign down, shut off the lights and everybody stay home. Because it's over with. So Paul is very guarded and these givers are very guarded about the credibility of the church. So notice what Paul does in order to lift the credibility of the church in this giving matter. Look what he says. I love this in um, verse number 3. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters uh, to carry your grace or your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go, I will go also. Now look, here's what Paul says. I will send them letters. Now here's the consensus of scholarship. The consensus of scholarship is that Paul wasn't going to write the letter, but the church at Corinth was going to write the letter, And based on the credibility of the church, send that letter to those leaders in Jerusalem saying, hey, these old boys didn't rob a train on the way to Jerusalem. These old boys weren't selling drugs on the side of the street. This money is an offering from the First Baptist Church of Corinth, and this letter approves it. And you see, that lifts the credibility of the church in the eyes of those other folk who knew nothing about it. Man, listen, church has got to have credibility. One of our students this morning came to me and said, hey, I need a letter for for school, for some scholarship stuff. Hey, that is credibility. What that school is saying is, we need the credibility of your church to endorse what it is that we are about to do here. And friend, if we lose our good name, if we lose our credibility, it's over with. So, as it relates to money and giving, those who are givers and involved in the work of the Lord are very guarded, and they should be. Hey, can I say to you, look, we guard that stuff with our life. There's not but one person in this church who knows what anybody gives. One person. And it's not me, and it's not John Wilson, it's not Cliff Myers, it's not Jerry Newman. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there's only one person who has that information. And I can assure you that it is in a locked vault. Nobody will ever know because we're just kind of guarded about that stuff. Hey, but you know what's so cool? And that might be cultural, it might be gospel, I don't know. But here's here's what's interesting. You know, for years Heather and I served as missionaries in Brazil and We'd go to these little mud hut churches that where we had got a group of believers in a kilombo village, and they'd make a mud hut and put a put a thatch roof on it, and that's where they would meet. And they would have stuff posted on the walls of their church. But you know what blows me away? You know what they post on the wall of their church? Dang tithing records. <laughs> you want to know what anybody gives, or if anybody's given? They've got everybody's name in this column, and they've got the dates on this column, and what they gave right down the middle. Now, how would you like to know that? Hey, i tell you what. Uh, who can build a farm? Bill me a board right here. <laughs> so that'd go over like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? Like a lead zeppelin? Which is interesting to me. Every time Heather and I go to one of them little mud hut churches and see that tithing record, we just can't help but laugh. But God bless them. They're getting it done, huh? Hey, here's why. Maybe because they're not so ainly retentive over financial stuff as we are. When nobody has nothing, who cares who knows, right? And that's kind of the way they are. But I can tell you, listen, let me get back to my original. I want you to know that your leaders at Grace Church are very guarded about financial stuff. And son, there's going to be no appearance of inappropriations. There's going to be no appearance of anything going wrong or anything getting out because we just know that that's the credibility of Grace Church involved with that. Number next, what are they guarded about? Were they guarded about the unity of the faith? See, here was the purpose for this gift. Paul talks about giving for the support of the saints in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There was a famine going on in Jerusalem, and now these Corinthian believers, who were looked upon as suspect by those Jewish believers in Jerusalem as not being legitimate, now here they are going to come to their rescue, going to send them a grace gift and promote unity across the entire kingdom as it relates to gospel propagation. Isn't that cool? Man, listen, I wish I could take every one of you to the places where these flags are represented. And I'm telling you, you will be amazed at the unity that exists between Grace Church and these places where we have missionaries at work simply because of what you are doing, being involved in the work of the Lord. It's amazing to me how that happens. Nonetheless, it does. Check out number next and I'm done. Those involved in the work of the Lord are guarded. They're guarded, they guard the credibility of the church. They guard the unity of the faith. And number three, they guard the integrity of the gospel. Look what Paul says. Here's how it comes out, I think. Look what he says in um, verse number three. When I arrive, whomever you may approve. So here's what he was looking for. He was looking for church approval. On some trustworthy men and women who could be trusted unquestionably with these finances, because look, they weren't taking a check. they were taking Do Ray me. And do you know how tempting it would have been along the way to spend some God's money on uh, something that you wanted? It's like the little boy that was walking to church. Don't you remember the story about the little guy walking to church? His mama gave him two quarters, one for ice cream and one for the offering. And he's walking to church, flipping that coin up in the air. And one quarter went down a manhole cover and into the drain. And the little boy said, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. They want your quarter. <laughs> I mean, it would have been very easy for them to do that. But Paul says, Church, I want you to look and you find people whom you would trust. Carrying your own wallet. And can I say it's that way? Listen, it's that way at Grace Church. It's that way at Link Up Missions. Anybody who's handling money, gospel money, they won't handle gospel money if I wouldn't trust them to handle my own money. So I want you to know the folk that are involved in money stuff at Grace Church, they are folk who the church approves and who we know there would never be a hint of an issue. Why? Because when it comes to money, hear me, the credibility of the church, the unity of the faith, but most importantly, the integrity of the gospel is involved. And friend, all it takes is one little slip up. And not only do we blow our credibility, which would be bad, but son, if we blow the, incred- if we blow the credibility or integrity of the gospel, that's a whole other level. And Paul says about these folk down in Corinth, he says, you guys be guarded as it relates to this. And check out what Paul says. I love the way he flips this around. He says, I will send them with your letters, with your grace, to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go, he doesn't say, I will go with them. Look what he does. They will go with me. You know, I think it's important here that Paul uses the plural. Anytime we have something involved in money, guess what? There's more than one person involved. That way if somebody says, hey, so-and-so did that, we've got a witness to say, no, they didn't because I was with them. See what I'm saying? That guards the credibility of the church and the integrity of the gospel. But Paul flips it around. He doesn't say, say, I'm going to go with them. He says, they are going to go with me. Old Big Daddy Paul says, make no mistake about it. If I'm there, I'm the leader. Check it out. Notice what else. we got to park this car in the same garage we got it out of. Working for the Lord. Those involved in the work of the Lord are givers. Those that are involved in the work of the Lord are guarded. But notice what Paul says, and I'm going to close with this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Notice how these folk down in, down in, uh, uh, in Macedonia, notice how, how is it that they were able to take these formulas and make them work. Things like great affliction... And deep poverty, overflowing in wealth of liberality and an abundance of joy. How in the world did that happen? Well, Paul tells us how it happens. Look at verse number 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. You see that? They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You know, it said about Baptists that the last part of our anatomy to be baptized is our wallet. We go under the water, but we hold that wallet pretty high. But notice what Paul says: the first thing you give is yourself to God. And when you give yourself to God, you have absolutely no problem in giving to the work of the Lord. Hey, Grace Church, we've been setting records. Thank you for your faithfulness. What do I think about this 40% downturn? I think it's just a glitch. I think it's just a bump. I think it's going to correct. I think it's just an anomaly. You know why? Because you've been faithful too long to bail out now. In Jesus' name, let's honor the credibility of the church, the unity of the faith, and the integrity of the gospel. And rather than cutting back, let's double down and get this good news to those who otherwise wouldn't hear it. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that the whole counsel of your word is what we need. Because we just picked and choose our topics, we would avoid certain topics like this one every time. But God, we thank you that we are able to see your grace. We're able to have your joy We're able to do abundantly above what we could do on our own when we trust you. So God, I pray in Jesus' name that you're going to use Grace Church as a global player on the unreached people market, laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven by extending the Word of God throughout the remotest corners of this globe by our faithfulness right here from Bonifay, Florida. Thank you for those, God, who are a part of this work. And I pray for those, God, whom you are calling to it, whether it's to be a member of Grace Church, whether it's to give themselves to the Lord for the very first time by being born again. Whatever it is you've said and however you're speaking and whomever you're calling, God, may we take a step of faith this day because without faith it's impossible to please you. And We pray it in Jesus' name. Colin Dollar is up front. Dr. John Wilson's up front. If the Lord said something to you today and there's a response that you need to make, In Jesus' name, you make it for His honor and glory.